It's May 17th, 2022, and I'm talking with the wise Matt McGregor about this week's acquisition headlines. You're wise, Matt. Thanks for being on. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So the first one we're going to do here, we'll get acquisition experts ask Congress to address decline in small business awards. And so what's really going on here is we've actually been hearing, you know, a few months ago, like there were some stats coming out that small business awards are actually shrinking. Um, like in the number of, of small businesses is shrinking and in, in the Department of Defense. And so one of the things that they're talking about here, of course, is consolidating contracts with uh, category management, of course, come from the General Services Administration, where they're trying to basically bulk buy things, you know, Costco, Costco discount things. But it seems like what I've been hearing on the street is like they're actually consolidating all sorts of different tasks under you know, like one kind of integrator type thing. So like only the Booz Allens potentially of the world and the small businesses can't really get at those because they're now, you know, at a performance level beyond any kind of small business. And so, yeah, so here there's one report showing a 17% decline between 2016 and 2019 in small businesses supplying goods to the federal government. So yeah, I mean, this one has always been kind of like, I've always had a weird eye on category management. I always think it's like, it's a good idea in concept, but maybe um, in execution has negative externalities, especially on these small businesses. So yeah, Matt, what are you, what are you thinking? Yeah, category management was uh, yeah something that's always been around, but it didn't really get a lot of force in the department until, I don't know, I want to say like five years ago or so. Um, and it was... It, yeah, I was skeptical too because it was kind of it was kind of like billed as this like you know going to save a gazillion dollars you know and it's just going to be like this magical thing that uh, you know if you do this and then sort of like you know everything is efficient and streamlined and perfect but you know when you start to centralize things there are like you said second third order effects that can't always anticipate and you know and there there's I think there's always an inherent problem with trying to like you know, if you need a computer, you have to go here and you have to get it through this one, one stop shop because we have a better deal on computers. Like in many cases, I feel like when DUD negotiates, the prices wind up being higher than oftentimes you can get on the commercial market anyway. So it's sort of one of those things where like, if you're doing good market research and you're asking, actually buying on commercial prices, like how much, how much of a better deal are you getting? You know what I mean? So so I don't know. There's there's probably a lot to unpack with category management and the, the benefits. Maybe some agencies are seeing significant savings, and, and maybe it's maybe it's worth you know some maybe some amount of small businesses dropping out of the market. But the, I think the larger point that I have is is in general with like the small business. I'd be curious your thoughts on this, Eric. Just like the, in general, like the idea of how small businesses are categorized, you know, by NAICS code, and like. This particular thing that they're bidding on and what NAICS code it happens to be in is are all these small businesses that declined, were they, are they small businesses in the sense that uh, they actually are like, you know, small owned, you know, uh, small business owned or small, I'm sorry, like a disability owned or women owned kind of thing, like disabled. Are they really a small business in that regard? Do they really have like, you know, 50 to 100 employees or is it just so happened that they like in this particular NAICS code they have? They have less business, and this is not that big of an impact to the to the larger industrial base. So I think I think there's just a lot more to unpack here to understand if it's really detrimental, if it's really sort of like putting small mom pods out of shop or out of business, or if it's really just sort of like not a not a big deal. Yeah, uh, actually, Amanda and Alex Bressler they had a paper. We'll be doing a podcast on that shortly. On 
you know, small business, uh, the decline in small businesses and, and what's been going on there. And they were kind of showing that, yeah, a lot of the small businesses in that are actually pretty large. You know, they're getting like hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars over a couple of years from the Department of Defense and, and other agencies. Um, but, you know, it is a good question as to whether these things actually result in efficiencies. Right. Like the GSA, they actually do have a tax on these things as well. So so they get their share. And then we remember we were talking about how GSA was like forcing uh, labor rates down. So on the services side, maybe it's a little bit cheaper, but it's really hard to attract the right kind of talent and maybe, you know, costs and deliverables are, are suffering from from that as well. But there's always something the government always does this, right? They uh, subsidize demand and they restrict supply. It's like the, the playbook of, go- <laughs> of government. And so what do they do here? They're like, let's let's subsidize small business by having these small business goals and all that kind of stuff. So we'll subsidize them. But then we'll also restrict supply by having category management and bulk buy and all this kind of stuff at the same time. So it's like there's like these weird, you know, forces going in opposite directions um, that never really seems to work out. And, and to, to your like the point before we've made about the pendulum swing, you know, there's like pendulum on like control and you know flexibility. There's also like pendulum swings on this sort of like you know uh, we want more small businesses, but we want these efficiencies, and then they swing back and say like what, what was one of the other things in the article is now they're talking you know Congress should work to counteract category management just when DOD was implementing that guidance now they're going to work to like you know roll them back so it's kind of uh, it's kind of funny yeah swing, swing one to the other one of the the stories i like to to tell on this one is um you know the gov- like the first time like really thought of category management or what i've seen in acquisition was like right after world war 2 the munitions board was like all right we're the munitions board. We can't have the army and the Navy buying all this, you know, different, the same thing, but twice and differently. So we're going to like centralize it all. And we're going to have one standard inventory system for all machine tools and all these other things from the war. And we'll have these cool IBM punch cards. And so we'll know exactly where everything is and we'll be able to distribute it as efficiently as possible through a central management process. And then it turned out that all of those were inaccurate. No one could use the IBM cards and the whole thing was like worse than if nothing was being managed at all. <laughs> it was just kind of ridiculous, <laughs> you know? And one of the- Well, I feel like any time- Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, one of, the, one of the examples was that like, you know, they had the same crane or something, but then they would send cranes on tracks to over that should be for the army over to a shipyard and then cranes with like the rubber, um, you know, with the with the rubber tires which would be on a shipyard they would send it to the army and it'd just be like this is ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> and invariably whenever you consolidate something it's like there's there's a time penalty right yeah like when you essentially it's like okay we'll put it in the queue i can remember like ordering things from centralized contracts and like the army had like a generator one office that made that like managed all generators and you had to get in the queue at a certain point or you might wait a year for your for your generator order, you know, but you had to go through that office because they were like the center of excellence or whatever the generator like place you had to go to. So it's like, yeah, it, there's a penalty too from a time perspective for this when you centralize things. It's like it's not, you know, efficiency doesn't necessarily mean you get everything when you need it. I got an urgent operational need for a generator, please. 
Exactly. Uh, next one we got Raytheon Technologies invests in hypersonic aircraft startup Hermius, and that's part of a hundred million dollar Series B financing round for Hermius, which of course is with their quarter horse and then dark horse, which is the full kind of operational thing, uh, Mach five uh, reusable aircraft. And so, yeah, it's interesting. Raytheon um, is kind of doing some venture here. Hermius CEO AJ Piplica says. Speed is the lifeblood at Hermius, and I've been impressed with the ability of the team at RTX Ventures uh, to embody that venture or that virtue. So, you know, at least there's some notification from that side that Raytheon looks to be kind of like on board with more iterative, you know, processes, but also this kind of new new way of doing business. So I think they're they're making a smart move there. Uh, looks like they're making all the right moves in, to some respect being able to get that that AFWORK stratfy um, and being being able to kind of scale up with with these kinds of right uh, partners potentially. Yeah, the one thing it is it is great to see. Um, you know, I think this is a place where the primes, you know, potentially can make an impact. I mean, it, there does seem to be a lot of capital out there, but on the hardware side, you, you know, I think uh, you know it's a little bit harder sell sometimes for for some of the venture capital firms. And so this is uh, this is great that this really promising company can, can get this. It is interesting though, like Raytheon, uh, the way they talk about their venture arm, they say that uh, they'd be focused on four four broad priority areas: uh, secure and connected ecosystems, autonomy and artificial intelligence technologies, power and propulsion systems, and precision sensing and effects. I'm kind of curious, like where Raytheon sort of sees this in their their larger. Um, their larger long-term kind of vision for their, you know, for, for the Raytheon kind of corporation. Is this something like, do they want to get into more of the, you know, propulsion systems for hypersonics? Do they want to play in the hypersonic space more? You know, I'm kind of curious where they see this fit in their portfolio, but, uh, but yeah, definitely, definitely great to see these guys uh, get the, get the, uh, get the funding they need and, uh, get the what is it? I think they actually have the quarter house. That's actually their like prototype. Yeah, that's the quarter. Right? That's so, the prototype. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Quarter house to the dark horse to the uh, yeah. They got to build a racetrack when they're, uh, when they're <laughs> yeah. I, well, you know, Raytheon. One of their I think four major business units is Pratt Whitney, right? So I mean, I don't think they do hypersonics now, but um, Raytheon also has yeah. Collins. Remember, and Collins stood up that um, that new kind of subunit within them that's really looking at you know hypersonics technologies remember so maybe there is some i mean raytheon's a huge corporation now that especially now that they kind of merge so um yeah maybe maybe they're in there somewhere yeah you're right yeah i forgot about that so maybe that that makes sense but you know at least for this one for me because i had aj pipica on the uh the podcast recently uh from hermius and you know, after the whole after the podcast, I looked at him and I was just like, man, you know, I'll be excited in like 10 years to have you back on the pod and like discuss discuss what you've done, like when you become big, like SpaceX, you know, and I was kind of thinking in those time frames, and he just looks at me almost like, you know, what are you talking about? Like 10 years, we're going to be there way faster than that. And I was just like, <laughs> oh, man, <laughs> like I'm, I'm starting to be a believer, you know, like it's I mean, I was I'm always kind of a believer, but like they're they're a smart bunch of guys. They're making a, a lot of the right moves, it, it seems like. And um, for like really technology focused people, they're really DOD savvy. Well, I mean, the, I do like the fact, though, that they have the commercial vision. 
I mean, if they actually can develop a hypersonic commercial aircraft that's like even reasonably affordable, I mean, that doesn't you know, doesn't have the the impacts that the Concorde had, then they, uh, I mean, they're going to be instant billionaires, right? I mean, that's that's pretty that's going to be pretty earth shattering to the uh, global kind of global travel market. So yeah, I really hope they get there fast. Yeah, I like the <laughs> those flights to LA are not fun. No, or, or going to Japan or wherever else, right? Right. Um, yeah, Mark Andreessen has the a kind of thought on that where it's like you want the barbell where it's like, okay, things we used to have this kind of industrial age notion of you go to work and then you come back home and you kind of stay in one town your whole life. Where now we're going to somewhere where it's like, okay, everyone's remote working, you can kind of work wherever. Um, but that also kind of frees you up to travel a lot more as well. So you're gonna have a lot more in person traveling and other events as well at the same time that you have a lot more kind of like over the internet types of interaction with work. And, you know, if you also have this kind of hypersonic aircraft that you could see the the times from like Tokyo to Los Angeles or whatever, it's just like dramatic, right? <laughs> In terms of mm-hmm. how, how much you can cut that off and, and what that would be willing for people to do. Um, so that would be an interesting kind of future, right? Like this kind of, everyone can kind of jet set all over the world um, pretty quickly and pretty easily, but also have a lot of these remote things. It's just, it seems like globalization is actually going in the wrong direction relative to that vision, um, you know, since COVID. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, Congress wants to wants potential 15-hull, five-year destroyer deal at three ships a year. So the, the tagline here is between 2023 and 2027, they, the Congress might want to, you know, boost that by five to get from a two a year production to three a year. Right. And I think last year or in the last 22 budget, um, the Navy actually tried to cut out a destroyer, uh, which wasn't received very well. And of course, it was kind of put back in. But, you know, some of the, the commentary here is that the two the two yards, of course, are Bath Ironworks and um, Huntington Ingalls and. Bath Ironworks has had a lot of kind of setbacks and issues with their workforce and and otherwise. And so um, they're kind of being delayed. And so it looks like Ingalls might kind of be the one to get two of the five or three of the five, maybe four of the five. I don't know how many of the additional ones they'll be doing. Uh, but yeah, th- it seems like, you know, that's even just getting from two to three a year is going to be huge pain for the industrial base to be able to ramp up so we'll see if they can even do that kind of modest ramp up yeah it seems like from reading reading some of the details there that the uh biw folks were having lots of issues they, they seem to yeah they're they're probably probably not going to get there but the hi the the, the huntington ingles guys maybe uh seemed like they had more their act together so maybe they could uh could take this on. I did have to laugh because uh, later on in the article, they talk about, like, I've seen, I saw this a lot with F-35 where, like, sometimes, you know, Congress people would ask a question that they had already asked Lockheed. It's like, during the Navy budget hearing, uh, Senator Hirano from Hawaii sought to clarify the Navy's view of the industrial base. Like, I checked with the shipbuilders and they said they could build additional ships. So we need to come together whether or not 15 is, is what we can actually get to. So not, uh, service leaders love nothing more than when you talk to the vendors without them being there. And they tell you, sure, yeah, we could build a thousand missiles. Uh, just give us the contracts, and then we'll, you know, we'll figure it out. But um, yeah, so that was like that was one point. The thing that still gets me about this, though, Eric, because it's like like we've talked about, is the larger point was the fact that the PLA is going to have, you know, a hundred more warships by twenty twenty seven, and 
and adding three, you know, three, four, five additional destroyers is like doesn't really put a dent in that. So it's kind of funny to me, like if they really want to put a dent in that, if that's where the concern is, is that we're just not going to have the numbers there. It's like, well, we have some really good options with, uh, you know, uh, large, large unmanned surface vessels. If you want to get there, let's uh, let's revert back to the, the the less less complex options on the table, and uh, and we could probably get those numbers up. You know, we could get some civilian shipyards, and we're not just relying on the two uh, on the two big ventures here. But uh, yeah, that didn't seem to be in the conversation, uh, unfortunately. But yeah, it seems like you need that mix of especially under uncertainty. It's like, okay, we need kind of like the, the continuing force structure that we have in shipbuilding plans, but we also need to be able to ramp up, you know, on the new thing um, in case it, you know, is really that disruptive. Right. So I think you just have to do both. And we're kind of maybe the, the DOD is just at that state where it's just kind of deferred, deferred and hasn't been able to modernize, you know, the hear, you know, the hearing for with the Navy, the thing that kept always coming up was, oh, you want to divest to invest, but you, whenever you do that, you give up capability now, and you never actually come through with the capability in the future. So we don't, we don't trust you, right? We're not going to let you, you know, retire those cruisers essentially. <laughs> and you know, the the Navy was even kind of on board with that. They're like, we're never going to. Like we're never going to prioritize that over sustainment. We got to sustain everything that we got, so that's our number one kind of priority. But so I think you're kind of stuck in a do loop unless you get more money, <laughs> you know? Because I don't know what else to do. Because like no one's going to trust the Navy um, or any of the other services to kind of divest to invest, even though they have been doing it. And the Marine Corps, the, the Congress has been kind of commending them, right? Like you just took it out of your own hide and you're doing it. But you kind of have the backup in the army, right? I don't know if there's a backup for the navy. Well, the, I mean, the air force is in the same boat, right? Is like, I mean, this was the this was the challenge for the last decade. Is you know they're always trying to get rid of old F-16s or old F-15s, and it was you know A-10s, and it was always like no, no, no. And so yeah, and then you know if you want to maintain a certain level of readiness, which I totally agree, because if you talk to the COCOMs, right, they want these ships, they want they want those carrier battle groups, they want those. Uh, you know, there's high end assets in the, in the fight, even though I would argue, you know, some of these fights, it's, it's questionable how, like how close they'll be to the action, but, but yeah, you know, they, they, there is a demand signal for them. And if they don't maintain readiness, um, then they don't have the assets even for the fight tonight kind of thing. So, so I do understand that readiness piece because um, that, that is, that's critical if you, if you want to be able to, you know, support an operation in the near term. But yeah, that, that point about if you can't divest anything and you're not getting more money, um, to me, the only option you have is to, okay, you're not divesting completely the destroyers, but maybe scale down the, the exotic ones and sort of like, you know, have a hedge with some of the, the unmanned stuff. And I know they have still have problems with them on reliability and they don't, they don't trust the whole thing. But, but yeah, you have to start to hedge or otherwise... Um, you're all in on these destroyers and these exotic ships, which you're never going to get to the numbers, right? Like there's no way you're going to build enough carriers, enough amphibs, enough, you know, um, you know, DDG 1000s, whatever to get to those numbers that China has. So you have to look at other things, but yeah. Boeing reportedly melting down over disastrous spacecraft. And that is of course is the Starliner, which uh, is a NASA program. And its supplier is Aerojet Rocketdyne, 
And of course, they're, they've been kind of pushing off these, uh, these launches and tests. Um, some of the issues are burning fuel way too fast uh, to ever reach the International Space Station. Um, they've been skipping crucial software tests. There's also been, it looked like, you know, a piece of the Starliner had fallen off the thing recently, and there's pictures of that. So the tagline here, there wasn't really much to it, but um, it was kind of a headline reportedly melting down because <laughs> it must be pretty disheartening, you know, to work on this program and kind of like over many years and just like not really being able to see light at the end of the tunnel when SpaceX is just like obviously kind of undercutting you in terms of costs, but then also like potentially quality and, and lift with their super heavy. So, yeah. I don't know what to say about Boeing these days. I mean, it really is a, it's a sad story. I watched the, um, I don't know if you watched the, uh, the, the Netflix special. Um, yeah. Uh, I forget, forget what it's called. But downfall, yeah. that, that, which is not a good down, title. Downfall, yeah. Not a good title. Downfall, thank you. <laughs> yeah, the, the other downfall was the, the Hitler movie, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not that bad, but but still pretty bad for that company that, you know, they were just viewed as like engineering, ex, you know, the, the top engineering expertise in the world, the, you know, highest quality standards. And just to see them now, I mean, the KC-46, like, Every every delivery, they're like find like a ladder inside the you know fuselage. They find you know a bunch of parts rolling around. Like it's just like sloppy stuff. And the engineering talent just seems like uh, something something is really awry there. That company needs a reset. But yeah, I got to feel bad for them here. It sounds like uh, the part falling off, and then some of the other issues that I wasn't really completely tracking on. But there were design changes to the valves, which were releasing fuel such that uh, the astronauts wouldn't have been able to get back home. Um, and they were skipping crucial software tests, which you think after MCAS, they would have learned that lesson. But um, yeah, so yeah, just a lot of stuff going on with this. I don't know if I, if I was an astronaut. I'm not sure I'd be uh, excited about flying in this quite yet. <laughs> but, uh, but I do hope they get there. I mean, it's, it, they've invested a lot into it. it. It would be good to have redundant some redundant capability, but uh, Boeing definitely needs to... Uh, sort of recalibrate some things here yeah i think i mean it's in the billions but wasn't i feel like it's like a 10 billion dollar program you remember nasa looked at the falcon they're like that'll cost 10 billion and spacex actually did it in 1 billion so it's like yeah it's uh, yeah. like reversal yeah. here of like i know yeah. um well it's sort of like the sda tracking layer like remember when we saw those contracts and like the two big primes and then york aerospace was like a third of the cost or something for the, for the same number of satellites. Uh, it's just, uh, yeah, I guess all that overhead, all those DCA Ford, Ford price, price rate agreements and all that, uh, they all add up. Yeah. But that's, uh, I mean that whole, the tracking layer and the transport layer just like seemed like a kind of tremendous triumph in terms of like, when you look at the unit cost is like 10, maybe $15 million <laughs> relative to like a hundred or, you know, a billion dollars that you'd normally see. So, but yeah, they, no, they, I just had the nice difference mix. between, yeah. yeah, between the big, the the, but the they were like, smalls, right. Yeah. They, they treated it was like, it was like, yeah, somehow, somehow the, the, somehow the smaller was like a fraction of the price. Like, yeah, it's a similar kind of similar situation here. So, yeah. I would love to actually get the, the cost reports on those and be like, cause if that's true, it's just like, there's no other way than kind of cronyism that you could go at to say, 
Like, why aren't you funneling more of the business, right? Like with the A10, when, when they were doing the, the ammo rounds, the uranium depleted thing, they would always have that, that thing would be like 80% goes to the lowest cost and 20% to the, to the other guy. Mm-hmm. And then you will kind of yeah. like switch off to see who can kind of get there lower faster. Um, but if you're just going to give them 50, 50, regardless of the cost, then what's the point, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Hopefully like after that first round, like the tranche one, like the future tranches would be, there'll be a a different, uh, different business model, but But yeah, I would like to actually see some, cause sometimes you never really know, like at contract headlines, like what are the clins and what's actually going on underneath that? Fair, Fair, fair point. All right, Raytheon announces arrival of first LTAMS radar to U.S. Army test range, and that's, of course, the lower-tier air and missile defense sensor, um, and that will improve uh, performance against a range of threats, including manned and unmanned aircraft, uh, cruise missiles, and even ballistic missiles. Uh, so it has a 360-degree actively electronic scanned array, and that's powered by some gallium nitride. Lots of interesting stuff here um, on on the on the missile defense, and so yeah, LTAMs. Yeah, I read another article that actually said uh, also some uh, the ability to detect hypersonics. So it sounds like it's a damn capable uh, radar, and the form factor is really great too. If you look at the uh, if you look at a picture of it, it, it almost looks like a uh, shipping container that unfolds. Uh, it's really nice and compact. I, I think it had to have been the, one of the requirements had to have been that it fits on a C-130 the way that it looks. So yeah, it's a pretty, pretty interesting uh, thing here. So I'm reading more about the, about some of the things that went into it. So this is the, it's the first of six. So they, they purchased six as part of uh, actually another, tra- another transaction. Uh, and they, uh, they were able to go from contract award. I think they missed their schedule by a little bit. But they were able to go from contract award. Yeah, they missed it by like six months. So, but contract award to operational fielding in about three and a half years. So, pretty pretty remarkable for for the Pentagon for sure. And uh, yeah, there, it looks like they'll do another round. So they're getting user feedback on this six these six radars. They're going to tweak the design, get some soldier feedback on the prototype, and they even this one article mentioned they're even redesigning the handles on access doors so they're less likely to poke someone in the eye. So, yeah, so I like that, that they're got this initial batch out there. They're going to build on that. So the next, uh, the next, however many they buy will be, uh, an, an upgrade. Uh, have some, have some tweaks and adjustments to it. Yeah. So uh, this seems to be kind of like an integral part of, uh, the integrated battle command system, kind of like that evolution of integrated air and missile defense program. And mm-hmm. yeah, we'll be firing Patriot missiles. They also have a new other transaction out for, a kind of like a future interceptor uh, for the Patriot. So looks like this is all going to be kind of part of that that suite of capabilities. Uh, yep. Next, one. pretty uh, pretty pretty critical when you're when I mean, you think about some of the, uh, the 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 China fight. So yep, yeah. Um, and, but the question is also, how many of them are they going to field? It's going to be like super important at the early days, and <laughs> I guess maybe China will be able to field all the missiles they want, but we our munitions base can't get up there. That would, that's the scary part, right? Well, yeah, and the cost has to be there, right? We can't be firing a, a ten million dollar Patriot interceptor to like take out oh. one of these things. <laughs> yeah, or hundred million dollar PRSM type missiles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, got it. Got it. Has to be somewhat cost effective. Yeah. 
Navy cost estimates. Well, let's talking about costs, right? Navy cost estimates on shipyard modernization wildly off. GAO tells Congress, and so that's the twenty-one billion SIOP plan, shipyard infrastructure optimization plan that the Navy has. They've been talking about how they're trying to accelerate. I think they doubled kind of like the funding in the FY twenty-two or twenty-three, uh, one of those. But the point here is that GAO took a look at it. It does not include inflation and other significant costs, such as those for utilities, roads, environmental remediation. And so that could dramatically increase the cost relative to this $21 billion number. And that number has actually grown 400% since its initial estimates in 2018. And so it looks like what they're basically trying to say here is, whoa, 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 slow down. Uh, analyze the hell out of this. What is the actual cost? When in my mind, it's like, we have to modernize these shipyards. We should be doing it now. We know these costs are going to come. Let's, you know, figure out the actual cost as we learn and and get some of that done. Uh, But this isn't something to kind of stall to get kind of bureaucratic perfection on. Maybe it is. I don't know. That's just my impression. But it seems like they've been looking at it for so many years. Do we need more you know, consultants to come in and optimize like the layout of this machine tool or that one. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess I wouldn't argue about the, uh, you know, if, if the consultants are there to, to find out like better ways, like, is there, you know, can you do things more efficiently or whatever and save a little bit of money? But, but yeah, I mean, if, if the plan is sound, if like the, you know, the plan hasn't changed and now it's just like, you know, well, for one, the supply chain issues have driven up the cost of a lot of things. So yeah. I do, I do sort of wonder if some of that's not the, you know, coming in there and they're, you know, probably buying these very, very, you know, long lead, you know, massive tools and all kinds of, you know, all kinds of new, you know, iron, you know, probably there's like two, there's probably like two steel plants in the world that can build some of these, you know, monstrosity things that they, uh, that they're, they're probably trying to replace. So yeah, if, you got remedi- environmental remediation and things like that not included. I mean, they're just going to have to accept that this is going to be a big bill. And if it's that important, they're just going to have to, you know, uh, manage it as close as possible so they can make sure that you're not getting you know, ripped off. But uh, yeah, it just, it just might be, it might just be what it is and trying to do cost estimates and get it perfect is at this point. Right. It's like, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, monitor it, see the progress as long as it's like moving along and, you know, time should probably be the bigger factor here, right? But hey, one thing I didn't know, Eric, I don't know if you knew this. Do you know there was a PEO for industrial infrastructure? Yeah, I saw that. I was like, where is yeah. this on like the charts that I've looked at for, for Navy organizations yeah. under, you know, ASN RDA? Just like never seen I know. That. I don't know if they just, I don't know if they made up that title for them or if it's like an official acquisition PEO or what. But yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Well, maybe they, they kind of created it for the PSYOP plan. But it feels like there should always have been such a PEO investing in the infrastructure and stuff like that. And it's just like, I don't know, we're always so obsessed with like, what's the actual cost of this or that thing? It's like, well, you know, we should be kind of investing in enabling technologies and infrastructure. And sure, we're not going to know how to spread those costs across every end item. But that doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do, (laughs) right? Well, it's almost like CapEx. Like I would, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think that's a great idea. It's like somebody who's just in charge of making sure that you have the, the digital infrastructure, the test infrastructure, the, um, you know, like when we talk about munitions, like the 
you know, making sure there's the organic infrastructure if you're, if you're relying on that. Like all that stuff that you need, you know, to, to have a military, like why not allocate a certain amount for kind of CapEx and just say, hey, there's a, you know, five to 10% cost every year and we're going to invest in infrastructure and it's going to make us better because of that because we're getting ahead of stuff, not waiting for things to be in quite crisis stage. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I kind of blame, you know, this, planning program, budgeting, execution, that kind of like program of record mindset for a lot of this. Cause it's like, it's not a coincidence yeah. that we have the Navy PSYOP plan. That's like way overdue. We have the army's organic industrial base that just came out with their 15 year kind of plan. That's also been way under you, like, you know, prioritized. And then you also have, you know, Heidi Shu coming in from the S and T sector saying, we need billions and billions of dollars because our labs suck and we'd have no test ranges and no one wants to come work for us without these types of things. We need to recapitalize that. It's like, how did, how did all of this go like unnoticed for so long? It's not that it went unnoticed. It just was unprioritized. That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do think part of it was the fact that, you know, we've, we've like we talked earlier, right? Like, you know, trying to do modernization and readiness and everything at once it kind of meant that the services had no room to do other stuff, to make the investments and in things that they probably would have if they could have, you know, divested some of the stuff years and years ago, done the modernization, but they wouldn't have had to be try to do both at the same time. And I think that has pressurized the budget for years and years. Plus you had, you know, the wars and stuff too, and that put a lot of, took a lot of the money away. So yeah, it's clear we've delayed way too long on a lot of this stuff and now we're, now we're kind of paying the bill. So the next one we've got here, the danger of FVL incorporating too much IP and hindering spiral development. And so this one was kind of interesting. I'd like to kind of get your view on it, but it seems like industry is kind of like pushing back a little bit in terms of, you know, the kind of approach to modular open systems and and the need for intellectual property, um, saying that essentially, uh, where is it here? There it seemed like what they were kind of saying was like, well, if you do all that, then we can't kind of innovate within our own kind of cycle times or whatever it might be. What would you get out of this one? Yeah. Mosa, the more I have learned about Mosa, the more I feel, the more I feel like I need to learn about Mosa. <laughs> I'm like when you, when you talk to, when you talk to people who really know, like really smart people and, and I'm fortunate to have access to some of them, it is extremely complicated. And, the fact is you can have MOSA um, on the kind of external of the system, but internally there's still a lot of proprietary interfaces. And so this is kind of the challenge, I think, with how DoD implements this, is we can say a system could technically be victory or OMS UCI compliant, um, but it doesn't mean that you'll be able to upgrade all the subsystems the way that you want to. Um, and that every, every interface will be open because Invariably, you do have to make trade-offs and to say, you know, where do the interfaces, you know, need to be open? Um, if you do it with every single one, you might there might be other trade-offs there that, like maybe OMS UCI tends to can, can delay, can create a lag when you don't when you don't want a lag. So it's like sometimes you know uh, some of these proprietary things may actually provide more capability. So I think what they're saying probably is that they've invested, they've created an architecture. Is it completely is it completely true that they um, all the things that they've done are purely design driven and not business driven? Uh, probably not. But but there probably is a case there that some of the 
some of the proprietary architectures are more capable and and probably can can meet some of the uh, some of the needs better than sort of opening up every single interface so that every single subsystem can be broken off and you know every every layer is virtualized and, and the whole thing. So I think that might be what they're saying when he without having the details when the journal says journal Rugen says uh, he's found the right balance is it, it might be that it's like okay we will we will decide that these interfaces here are open so that you know, externally we can compete different things and, and they will just have to comply with this interface standard. Um, but that inter internal to the guts of the system, some of that will be proprietary. So hopefully that doesn't mean, and this is what happened with F35, we had an integrated core processor. If you, wanted to, uh, if you wanted to upgrade that processor, you almost had to redesign the entire system because everything was so, you know, integrated with it. So hopefully it's not that bad, but uh, I think the point will be is you probably will have challenges integrating some things without the prime being uh very much very much uh, having control of it and probably having some you know a, a good part of the ip that uh you know you'll be paying them a, a good chunk of money to do the upgrade so so i don't know it's probably a balance but uh you know i think the bigger point here was like you know uh, are these systems i think lauren thompson like later in the article is kind of an interesting article actually he kind of almost uh, sort of challenges, like, are these systems even the right systems? <laughs> Which, uh, you know, given that they were designed years and years ago, is this the right investments to be making? Like, are these systems the ones that we are going to have, we're going to use in a close fight? You know, uh, these uh, sort of, uh, you know, pr propeller systems, are they survivable? Are they are they the ones you're going to take into uh, those those near peer peer fights? So, I think that is a good question um, about whether the system is is relevant for the for the for the threats. But, but yeah, yeah, that is definitely one that seems to be on top of people's minds. But everyone keeps saying like, oh, the V22, like it gives us that that range and speed and capability that no other platform has. Um, not really sure whether the Defiant X can do the same thing but yeah i'll be interested because that's yeah he was saying that right like the requirement came out of kind of like a global war on terror you know mindset and now like we're many years on and that's not really exactly what it's for but we're kind of moving forward right um anyway yeah uh, yeah i read a good article about like tanks about like the the, the big debate is about are tanks still relevant right and so apparently there are like kind of self-protection systems that are so sophisticated, actually, the Israelis seem to have the best one. Yeah. So sophisticated that actually, you know, tanks can be pretty darn survivable if you employ them the right way and you have the right systems on them. I don't know with well, how many how like, many like incoming missiles can the active protection system? Is it just like one or two? I always kind of had the no. It's like it couldn't just like repeatedly take out a number of them. Yeah, I think it has. It's more than that, but it, it does have to be rearmed. I think after a certain point, but but yeah, like are, are these are these aircraft? Uh, you know, are the self are the self protection systems? Or are they are they sophisticated enough where maybe they can go a little bit? Because if you yeah. look at the Flora, they have the the Flora piece of the future vertical. It, it looks an awful lot like an F twenty or V twenty two. So yeah, it's like uh, maybe the V twenty two has figured out some of these things, uh, and it feels comfortable getting within a certain range or operating within a certain uh, you know protection window. But uh, yeah, it's it's a good question. Yeah, they well one one thought is like, can an active protection system on a tank actually take out a javelin, or is the javelin coming from yeah. the top? You know, not part of that scheme. <laughs> 
Yeah, if you look up the um, the Israel, um, oh man, I'm blanking on the name. Yeah, the, the uh, trophy, I'll, I'll I think it's called. Trophy, yeah. yes, the trophy, thank you. It, it apparently has like a 95% success rate or 100% in, in some of the some of the cases for um, taking anything out. I mean, wow. it, so yeah, yeah. javelins, uh, yeah, hypersonic, actually it took out a hypersonic missile. Um, and, and it can take out, it can detect some of the uh, overhead ones as well. So yeah, it's That's a, impressive. I was, I was, I know I was a little blown away by, uh, and, and it's been used in a lot of different, uh, militaries, the Germans are installing it. And, and so it's, it's kind of like, uh, definitely kind of gotten the field testing, you know, it's actually been, been employed. So. But this is kind of like the Edward Luthvakian kind of principle here that you always have this kind of back and forth and like. Okay, yeah, you got yeah. these big, you know, platforms, but they're big for a reason because they they're kind of modular and you can kind of upgrade them and make them really survivable and all these other things. So, um it seems like the the way that army marine corps folks are kind of talking about is like, yeah, we've seen in Ukraine that you have these kind of decentralized, you know, lighter more missiles kind of, you know, people running around with javelins and stingers, but that's actually most powerful when you like connect that with a more traditional kind of force structure. And now you have like the, the best of both as opposed to like one dominating and you don't actually need that armor anymore. Yeah. Well, and then there's the other piece of, you know, it's a, it depends on the battle you're fighting, right? The Pacific is is probably not, not the best place, but if you're fighting a land battle, um, and you're doing combined arms and you have tanks with infantry, with air superiority, you know, with, uh, you know, long range fires, um, that's probably going to be a pretty powerful combination and tanks will allow you to advance in a way, in a more protected way than, you know, infantry would. So yeah, it's like, I think it just depends on like the battle you're fighting and how you're employing it. The enemy, like what, what's, what do they bring into the fight? I mean, Russian tanks were always sort of lightly, more lightly armored. So maybe, you know, javelins and, you know, switchblades work better against them than, than it would some other, you know, other countries like the U S and Europe. But, um, yeah. So I think you have to, you always have to look at all the details on these things. It's hard to kind of come to a conclusion that like, okay, no tanks, but that is what the Marine Corps is getting a lot of heat about is giving up their tanks. And they're saying, you know, saying like, well, without that, you're, you're going to be very reliant on very lightly armored, you know, kind of capabilities and only the army is going to have the tank. So, you know, can the Marine Corps fight those, those open battles is that is that something that they still have the, the capabilities to do and i think that's what some of the generals were arguing about on, on that whole debate but yeah but how fast yeah. are you going to deploy I, I mean if the the marine corps is like they keep saying fight tonight or whatever right do you really need them to like how fast are you going to be able to mobilize all that kind of stuff maybe the army just comes up from the back with all that stuff while the marine corps yeah. you know does their yeah. thing in the time that's relevant for their thing but then i'm also kind of like well, where's like SOCOM? Like, how am I differentiating SOCOM and the Marine Corps? I'm I'm glad we have both, but you know, they're also. But you know, the Marine Corps is technically considered the entire service is considered special forces. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Definition. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's move on to Pentagon test high-powered microwave system against drones, and there's actually three of them. We keep hearing about the Pyrrhus, um, or a Pyrrhus. Uh, there's also Raytheon and Leonardo DRS that have been doing these. Some of them are not very um, advanced, it looks like. <laughs> so it looks like Le- <laughs> Leonardo's or Raytheon's, one of them, they're kind of like still still working 
working out the kinks and they didn't actually have like the, the emitter there. They're just like, oh, well, we can track these things. Uh, but there are three groups <laughs> of UAVs that were tested. Um, apparent, I don't know if this is like a real kind of grouping that people commonly use, but group one is up to 20 pounds, group two, 21 to 55 pounds, group three, 55 pounds, but less than 13, 20 pounds. I'm assuming that's like a an MQ-1 predator or something like that. Um, but they've tested them uh, across all of these, and it looks like they're able to engage. They've only done one or two at a time simultaneously, but I heard the purists that they could engage like dozens at a time um, in previous mm-hmm. tests. So yeah, interesting here. The one thing I kind of took away, though, was that the the army, which of course is running the kind of joint counter UAS office, um, they're also assessing small counter small UAS as a service contractor owned government operated capabilities at fixed locations. So we talked about this a lot. I'm just interested to see what that actually means, you know, contractually, budgetary, and there's like in the business relationship. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, definitely the details of that. Like, how is the um... How is the billing done? Because there has to be like a minimum, right? You can't have, you can't have like folks in there like, oh, well, no, no drones came. So <laughs> yeah. no money for you for years on end, you know? Um, so, it's got to be like yeah, an installation to... thing, right? Like <laughs> yeah, you yeah. buy a license to an installation protecting that thing. I don't know. Yeah, something, something like that. So I, I'm curious about those details too. There's, uh, we're doing a pilot for consumption-based, uh, some consumption-based services. We haven't, some of the some of the things haven't awarded yet, but I'm I'm really curious at some of the arrangements that have come up because, you know, finding that balance between what what the government is willing to pay for potentially services it's not going to be getting because it doesn't need them yet, and then what you know what industry what's the minimum that industry needs to make this like a viable business case is kind of interesting. One one thing that was good though is I, I really like to see some some new players in the game there. I mean, Raphael sort of a, a you know a big uh, big behemoth in Israel and. SAIC is a big player, but like Black Sage, you know, kind of a, you know, like a, a new entry there. I like that they they got some uh, some, some some new players in there. Yeah, uh, Black Sage and Enduro, the new guys, um, Khaki. I think they only like to be called yeah, CACI, but I always call them Khaki, Raphael, and SAIC. <laughs> so those five were other companies, you know, there to demonstrate counter UAS, but they do not use the. Uh, the microwave capabilities that that the others were at this test range at in this mm-hmm. instance they weren't the three the three that uh yeah got the microwave ones uh so start moving a little bit faster but there's a couple articles here on the light amphibious warship or laws which is being delayed but the marine corps has a temporary solution so uh basically there's as we've known we've been talking about this there's um this kind of big you know, requirements look at what what does the Marine Corps really need in terms of uh, amphibious warships? I guess the requirement that they're coming down hard on is 31, but they want closer to 50. And um, but the the laws, which is this this smaller one, about 75 Marines that can, can kind of be moved um, more quickly. Um, and it also includes anti ship missiles and other things like drones uh, but they've been trying to push this in 23. Now it looks like it's going to be pushed back to 25. And the the price per hull is also kind of accelerating. It was earlier price tag at 100 million per hull, then 130. Now they want to keep it under 150. So hopefully, you know, I guess my, my view here is 
hope the Marines kind of get what they want, but they're also able to do it in a way that keeps the costs low and not like ships always want to kind of build out and, and get all of this kind of gold plating on it. It feels like that's what's happening to the frigate. Uh, they've kind of extended the hull and they've kind of rearranged the layout, it seems like. So um, hopefully they're able to kind of get what they need, but at a reasonable price. Yeah, especially if they want to get the numbers. Um, yeah, so I hope there's not gold plating. I mean, reconnaissance drones sort of being integrated as part of the ship seems a little uh, a little curious, but uh, why that couldn't be sort of added afterwards. But um, yeah, it's a, you know, they are 200, 400 foot long ships, so they're not super small. So I guess it makes sense that they're somewhat expensive, but 150 million does seem, does seem pretty high. Um, but this is definitely, if, uh, you know, I'm not sure how supportive the Navy actually is of Marine Corps' new plans. Um, sounds like there might be some skepticism or at least, uh, not wholehearted support, but, um, you know, if, if the Marines are going to be able to implement their, their, uh, 2030 force design, uh, this is a pretty critical uh, piece of that. So along with the LPDs, right. For, for larger protection, uh, which are supposed to like escort the, the laws. So, but they're, of course, they're, they're trying to cut that production line early. Yep. Right. So, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so interesting kind of switches being made there. I think most, you know, a traditionalist would be like, no, let's let's just finish out the buy of, of, of the uh, San Antonio class and, you know, use what's proven. I don't know. Well, I, <laughs> it looks like the LHAs and, and the LPDs um, might get a little bit short shrift, but it looks like they're also trying to ramp up on these. I guess we'll see. What, I mean, you that, need the that, mix, right? They keep saying, like, I need the large... I need the medium and I kind of need the smallers as well. So I, I, you know, one thing that we, we might never know, cause it, it might, might not be enough. We might not see the history, but I wonder if some of the, uh, some of the gold plating is because the Marine Corps is feeling like maybe those LPDs won't be assured. And so they have to get a little bit more protection capability out of, out of the other walls. So maybe there is a correlation to the, to the whole thing. Mm, interesting. Um, a couple articles here on Aero Environment. They got an $18 million contract for the Switchblade 300s. Um, and they didn't really say how many that is, but you can buy roughly 300 Switchblades if they're each $60,000, which seems to be a reasonable F estimate. They were 76000 per unit um, in the budget for a couple of years ago. So, yeah, they, I, was, I was pretty interested to see that. I was also... I wasn't clear on how kind of late the the 600, the kind of like the tank, the heavy armor version of the Switchblade, that's hasn't even been like purchased yet. They they're doing some tests on it, but FY20 was kind of uh, the original. Uh, it's kind of like when it started to be um, coming out. So Switchblade 600s not being used anywhere, not in Ukraine. I think they're just kind of developing and testing those Switchblade 300s. They've been buying for some years. I think that program kind of started out in 2012 and they're shipping them over to Ukraine. And there's actually the first recorded use of a Switchblade 300. Um, and it looks like it was successfully uh, blown up. So, <laughs> Yeah, this is, um, it, it really is a shame because you're right. The, the army has been buying small numbers of these for a while um, along, along with SOCOM, but they never really sort of, integrated them into it doesn't appear at least that the army really integrated them into their operations it was more of like a 
a sort of like a, a hedge, I guess, maybe kind of thing for, you know, for something to, to try out in the future. But it doesn't seem like they were all in. And it's too bad because now we're at the point where like we're trying to ramp up and, you know, the same old thing. You want to ramp up and the, the company is just like, we don't have the, you know, we don't have the people, we don't have the facilities, we don't have the equipment. It's going to take, you know, it'll probably take them a year to get up there. And then like Ukraine will have been over and, you know, we'll be back to where we started from. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we learn our lesson though. And then we see something really promising, like, you know, let's just stock up, like, you know, like, especially on something that's low cost, like. That's, I think, part of the lesson for DoD is like put some of these in inventory. Like most of these things are not do not expire. Like there there are some munitions that have issues like cruise missiles sometimes warp and different things. And you have to sort of like, you know, do maintenance on them. But for the most part, some of these things you could, you know, you sit there, you got them in stock when you need them, you know, pull them out. So keep keep a keep a hefty stockpile just in case we don't know what we're going to have to fight in the future. So. Yeah, the army actually tests. I think, like, I heard recently that they test like some percentage every five years to ensure, you know, yeah, that they work yeah. and stuff like that. But yeah, it's it, well. The, the one thing that was funny here is like how they were talking about that the army's been dragging its feet on the switchblades because, well, they really didn't need it in the global war on terror. That wasn't like a, a switchblade six hundred wasn't really something that that was a requirement, and it just makes me think about like. Man, like, re- how not? Well, the, how is it not a? Re- <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, there is, like, it's like what a perfect is the requirements process. Like, the requirements process never leads to these things, right? Like, oh, we had no requirement for a hypersonic. We had no requirement for GPS. We had no requirement for a switchblade. And just like, yeah, of course you did. You always did. Like, the tech was there. Pe- lots of people been thinking about it. It's just never formally somehow like there was a quote unquote requirement. You know, I just don't. You know. Just seems like the requirements process is, you know, backwards or just doesn't lead to the things that you actually need. Well, I also I mean, on, on that front, though, I also don't think it takes a lot of creativity to see application for the switchblades and the global <laughs> war on terror. I mean, there, you know, we were dropping, I mean, in some cases, we were dropping thousand pound bombs on ISIS, small ISIS units. Um, and so I think a switchblade may have done the trick in some of those cases. So, and we did invest in, you know, APKWS, you know, the, the small or small rockets and stuff that we're doing. So that makes sense. Yeah, it is kind of, it's a little bit hard to, hard to understand that logic. Um, yeah. And by the way, Lockheed is looking to double the Javelin missile production from about 2,000 to 4,000 a year. So I'd like to see where those other... Who, who all the people buying them are because DOD has only been buying, you know, well less than a thousand per year um, over the last few years. So um, that's impressive that they can ramp up. They, they, they must've sort of, but what I didn't get a time capacity. frame on it. Like when is the, when oh, are we okay. getting to 4,000? Okay. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. 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 That might, that will be curious to watch though. I mean, they have more resources and more, more like facility, you know, generally more facility space. So, so they might be able to pull it off faster but yeah well last one we'll do here uh is navy's independence class littoral combat ships are cracking and so we've been talking about this on and off of course and i think recently i said like you know i was surprised like the way the independence class looked i felt like a lot of the problems would have been there but more of the problems seem to have been with the freedom class like the combining gear was always this major issue uh, but now we're seeing that half of the 13 Independence-class ships currently in service have developed cracks in their hulls over the past few years. And so 
there's a bunch of high stress areas on the ship's structure. Uh, basically, these cracks are appearing mostly above the waterline. So now they just have to basically slow them down to something like 15 knots and they can't go to sea state four. Um, but it's it's just kind of ridiculous, right? Because the LCS made all these absurd you know, engineering trade-offs in order to get to that kind of like 40 knot requirement, right? And again, here's the requirements <laughs> approach, screwing things up. And then like, okay, I developed this thing, but then like I have all sorts of engine troubles. I'm starting to stress the hull uh, because of it. And now we're just retiring them all. It just looks like they're just going to write them off or potentially just give them to another nation. I wonder if an allied nation would even want them, you know, so there, oh, there we are. Think so. <laughs> Yeah, I I mean the the Admiral Gilday seemed like he he had just reached his limit on, on this uh, on this uh, problem set here <laughs> with the, when he was testifying about it. So yeah, the the other what it, it what, later on in the article it talked about some of the details. It would require replacement of the deck plate and shell plate with thicker material, among other actions, um, either by Allstall or the Navy. So potentially the Navy would have to do some of this work. The, the, the weight, uh, the added weight of the thicker material could present its own set of problems, potentially slowing the fleet down even further. Um, and so, you know, uh, the other piece was the fact that the mission package concepts has been totally abandoned. So the anti-submarine warfare package has been eliminated from the program entirely. So now there's just a single mission package. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it's a death knell there. Um, so it yeah. was supposed to be modular and have these mission packages. And now it just, it can do one thing, you know, clear slowly, very slowly. <laughs> yeah. And most of them are going to be retired anyway. So before they like have so, any operational utility, somebody, somebody put it to me, like, like why did this ship need to go at uh, like 40 knots? You know, yeah. Basically, basically like jet skis or, you know, jet ski speed or like, you know, something you could water ski behind. <laughs> Seems a little, 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 uh, little intense at a 50 mile an hour uh, speed, speed uh, requirement. But. Well, maybe you can outrun a missile like that, you know, <laughs> no 50 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. Well, that's all we got time for this week. Uh, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.